This summer, Americans have witnessed a series of disturbing events exacerbating tensions between police and the communities they serve. In July, police shootings of unarmed black men in Louisiana and Minnesota sparked protests across several cities. That week, a gunman fatally shot five police officers during a peaceful rally in Dallas, and three more police officers were killed in Baton Rouge later that month. Most recently, on August 13th, tensions in Milwaukee boiled over after a black man was fatally shot by police. These tragic events prompted us to revisit an episode we ran back in 2014, when the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, thrust these issues into the national spotlight. Today, we'll explore how efforts to clean up corruption in the Los Angeles Police Department in the 1950s ended up putting officers above the law. We'll hear what happened when a group of senators told the nation that police were to blame for the riots in the 1960s. And we'll look at the reasons that police departments were created in the first place. A hint? It wasn't to fight crime. Over the past few years, many Americans have noticed a stark racial disparity between police and the people they're policing. When Michael Brown was shot two years ago, only four of Ferguson's 53 police officers were African Americans. And that's in a town that was two-thirds black. There are a lot of explanations for this disparity, but what's clear is that it represents a real departure from the way a series of minority groups used to become police. For immigrants in the 19th century, it basically amounted to a patronage system. You give me a job on the police force, and in exchange, I'll help turn out my fellow countrymen to vote for you in the next election. And I'll do that again and again if you need it. If you're talking about the Irish of the 1840s, they are displacing over time a German immigrant of an earlier generation. This is historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad. If you're talking about Southern Italians of the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century, they're vying for spots against a very entrenched Irish immigrant and Irish American police force. So depending on where you are in your American journey depends on how quickly one can ascend to the ranks of the men in blue. It was in this way that a succession of immigrant groups, groups that at first were thought of as being especially prone to criminality, effectively shed that reputation, moving into positions of political and economic power eventually. Those uniforms represented an arrival, so to speak, for the community of being fully incorporated or Americanized or even assimilated to, to this country. They were able to essentially decriminalize their own community by virtue of both representing law and order when necessary, but also um, demonstrating that the state itself cared about them and the social contract. What happens when African Americans begin moving north in large numbers, let's say during World War I or surge during World War II? Do they have those same opportunities to become police officers? They did uh, over time, but their options were far fewer, meaning that the number of slots on any given police force, uh, New York City, for example, had a very small number. In fact, so small a number in the beginning, uh, single digits. 
And uh, these were truly token opportunities. Um, more interestingly, they were usually attached to the increasing presence of African-Americans or uh, Caribbean immigrants in particular neighborhoods. So if you look across the country at the turn of the 20th century or even in the Great Migration period in the North, you'll see that most black officers are only policing the black community, which also further limited their options. Right. Uh, to a degree, that was true for other European immigrants as well, but those barriers to policing beyond uh, the ethnic ghetto fell much quicker than they did for the black one. Why? Well, because black police officers outside of the South in particular, um, it was not socially acceptable for them to police white communities. Uh, so regardless of their rank or title, they were generally restricted to only policing the black community. But in those instances where African-Americans were uh, police officers in their own communities, did that alchemy work in a similar fashion? It didn't work because black people were only policing black people. But going back to the mixed communities of European immigrants, if you're an Italian-American or an Italian immigrant and you're in a heterogeneous population of Irish and Jews and Polish Catholics and others, whatever stigma was attached to your particular subgroup eventually sheds because people get to know you as Officer Kelly or I like to joke, or Officer Giuliani, right? <laughs> so this is, you know, the Irish and the Italian bookend to the process of not seeing the particular European nationality as particularly threatening. Not for nothing, Ray Kelly represents a tradition of Irish Americans, the former commissioner of police here, and Rudolph Giuliani represents a tradition as a chief law enforcement officer, as a former federal attorney of Italian-American succession. But... In outside of the South and across the north and west of this country, you, you still, you've never had a heyday of ethnic succession following black people into uh, our police forces. Um, they are to this day overwhelmingly white, even though in our inner cities, in our urban communities, the population um, is not nearly as white as are the police forces. Well, I want to drill down into that. Khalil, I was listening to uh, cable news. I don't even remember which channel. And um, I heard a pundit uh, talk about there not being black police officers in Ferguson because there wasn't a tradition of policing in the black community. How would you respond to that fellow? I think when we talk about tradition, we can document with great evidence, tremendous optimism and interest in participating in all forms of civil society, mm -hmm. including policing, right. and that these were always perceived to be jobs for people who had good hearts and were committed to uh, their own upward mobility. And so African-Americans have always pursued these jobs commensurate with their own American dream aspirations. And it's only in the midst of the last 30 or 40 years in the wake of the great disappointments of economic and social mobility since the civil rights movement that we can introduce this variable of community distrust of policing. It's not to say that African-Americans didn't distrust policing at the turn of the 20th century, but they did so far less 
today because they could imagine a world without segregation prior to the civil rights movement. The problem you have now is we live in a post-civil rights moment, and it's really kind of hard to imagine, well, what, what does America look like um, without this new form of Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander um, frames it? So all I'm suggesting is that perhaps there is something to be said about less enthusiasm among 15 and 17 year olds uh, for joining police forces given policies like stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. But that's not representative of a tradition. That's representative of the contemporary realities of discriminatory and abusive policing in black communities. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. 